If you would like to open up your Bibles, please, to Daniel chapter 7. Darren, I love you. Open up your Bible to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9. Daniel chapter 7 verse 9. We have been covering as a church the life and the times of the prophet Daniel. And last time I shared on this, we were covering the vision that Daniel has. In Daniel chapter 7, we looked at these four beasts that Daniel sees. And we we talked about the rise and the fall of the little horn of Daniel chapter 7. If you haven't listened to that, I would advise you to go back and do so. Uh, It's a really important message. It's not a message you're likely to come across regularly at churches, but this is biblical revelation. This is biblical information, stuff that builds up and nourishes the church. So I would advise you to go back and listen to the first part of this message if you haven't already. Today, we are going to be talking about a doctrinal issue. We're going to be talking about a doctrine of scripture that I believe is perhaps the most important doctrine for the times that we live in now. I believe it's also one of the most controversial doctrines of this time. In fact, many Christians say that they believe this, but in practice, they don't believe it. We're talking today about the sovereignty of God, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. In this passage, we are looking at two prominent characters, one named the Ancient of Days and the other one, the Son of Man. I wonder if you could just grab me my Bible from in there, Dave, in my bag. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. Um, Somebody grab me a Bible then in that case. Mine seems to have gone walkabout. Thank you. We're reading from verse 9 through to verse 14. Let's pray before we begin. Father God, we pray that as we approach the hearing of your word today, that this word would be like a light that unfolds in our hearts, that helps us to grow in understanding that this word would be a lamp to our feet as we walk through the trials of life. We pray, Lord, that we would have a fertile soil in our hearts to allow this word to grow in us and bring forth fruit. And God, I pray also that as your servant, that I would not get in the way of your revelation today, but would offer it to your children, to the sheep, as it is without any kind of lens attached to it, without any of my own pet doctrines attached, but preach this word exactly as it is with integrity. Lord, help me to do this. Amen. Amen. Let's read together. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. 
Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated. The books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority glory and sovereign power all peoples nations of men of every language worshipped him his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed hallelujah thank you for that Belinda what translation is this excellent the NIV is a great translation there Um, that's what we've just read from I want for us to see again today, brothers and sisters, the absolute sovereignty over all that God has made. That's the kind of power and authority that he enjoys. Absolute rule and power over the cosmos, over the heavens, over the earth, over this church, over you, over me. He does rule both in the heavens and on the earth. And I want for us to catch this. I want for us to see that all the powers of the earth, we see there's four beasts, don't we, in that passage. One of them, the fourth beast with this horn, the little horn representing the man of sin, what we call the Antichrist, is cast into the fire. This is the most rebellious governmental system ever to exist. And this is the most sinful, rebellious man, the most powerful man other than Christ that ever will live, is cast into the flame. There's not even a fight. The Lord judges the nations. I want you to see this. The Lord sovereignly judges all kingdoms, governments, regimes and empires. All of them are helpless before the throne of God. All of them are just as helpless as the other in the face of his fiery throne. Amen? I want you to see also that God has a kingdom. God has a kingdom. Not only is he a king, but he has a kingdom. And his kingdom is the only one that will last forever. We read that thrones are placed. That's the first thing that we read about. He says, as I looked, thrones were set in place. That's the first thing that Daniel notices. The ancient of days, this character in his vision, is seated upon a throne. He's seated upon a throne. I want you to catch that right now because this is important. God, the ancient of days, is seated on a throne. He sits on a throne. The throne of God is an image, is a picture that's ubiquitous. That means it's everywhere through your Bible. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. It's in the Gospels. It's in the prophets. It's in the Old Testament narratives. You see this time and time again. They talk about the throne of God. The throne of God. In fact, when the Apostle John, when he was on the Isle of Patmos, he had a revelation, didn't he? He had a vision. And in Revelation chapter 4, we read 
part of John's vision. Listen to this, Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And there was the voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, and it said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who was sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. Seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning torches of fire, seven of them, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. When we say in this church that God is sovereign, do you know what that means? Have you thought about what that means, that God is sovereign? To say that God is sovereign is just this, is simply this, to acknowledge that God sits on a throne. That's all that that means, that God is sovereign. We're just acknowledging the biblical truth that God does reign, that he is a king, that he sits on on a throne, that he exercises his authority as God, not like an elected official, not like an MP, not like a CEO, not like a prince regent, but as the king of the universe. Did you know that? Your God is a king. Let me read the definition to you. Of sovereignty. The definition of sovereign is this. A supreme ruler. A supreme ruler. A monarch. In the same book that we're studying right now. In Daniel chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar. One of the most tyrannical rulers ever. Says this about the God who we worship. He says this, all the inhabitants of earth are recounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God rules as a king. He is the indomitable lion of Judah. He is not an elected official asking for permission to do his will. He is ruling and reigning today from the throne of heaven, stretching out his purposes and his providence over all the earth. And every mind and every heart is subject to him. Our God is sovereign and he does reign. You might say then, How can God really be reigning though? How can he truly be reigning? How can he really be sovereign? And this is the question many Christians ask. And this is why this doctrine of sovereignty is so important today. They'll say, yes, well, okay, we all believe. We can all say, amen, God is sovereign. But in practice, we we don't really think he is. Because look at all the sin in the world. Pastor Graham, look at all the evil. How can you say God is sovereign? 
How can you say God is in control when we've got the crisis on the Ukrainian border? How can you say God is sovereign when we've got this virus that doesn't seem to go away? How can you say that God is in control, you fool? How can you say God is in control when it seems like people in this nation are happy to worship anything apart from the God who actually does exist? You ever notice that? You get ridiculed for preaching the gospel that Christ rose from the dead. That, that's foolishness. But we'll pay hundreds of pounds to have somebody read our palm. We love it when people talk about crystals and their life-giving effects. But we'll ridicule the gospel of Christ. How can God be sovereign? How can God be in control when that's the state of our nation? Let me show you how it's true that God is in control, even over sin, even over rebellion. Watch this. What's the greatest sin ever committed? What's the greatest evil you can ever think of? I'll tell you what the greatest evil ever committed was. It was the murder of the Son of God. I want you to see that. I want you to understand this with me. Many people don't understand that. They say, no, how could that be? How could it be that the murder of Jesus is the worst? I can think of worse sins. No, you can't. No, you can't because you're a sinner. <laughs> Sinners will never understand the true depth of sin. Not until we go to glory, not until we look Jesus in the face will we understand how holy and perfect he is and how heinous that crime was that people he created murdered him. The greatest sin was the murder of Jesus Christ outside the city walls of Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago. This is a horrific act of violence, the most grievous sin that anybody has ever committed and I'll debate anyone who says otherwise. But do you know what? You know what I can tell you about the greatest sin ever committed? God predestined it. Did you know that? God ordained it. He purposed it. The greatest sin that ever happened, God actually predestined it to happen. Let me prove it to you. Acts 4, 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus who you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Listen to this. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So Herod, Pontius Pilate the two who condemned Christ to death, the Gentiles, the peoples of Israel, the people who did it, right? They did what God had predestined to take place. Let me, let me show you another verse. Acts 2, 22 and 23. Men of Israel, this is Peter preaching at Pentecost. Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The most heinous crime of all history was predestined by God. 
God was in control of that moment. It didn't surprise him. If you think that the cross was an accident, you're not a Christian. If you think Jesus didn't expect it, you haven't read your Bible. Does that mean that God was guilty of that sin? (laughs) Because he ordained it, that means that he's guilty and therefore not God? No. Why? Because the Bible says so. Listen to it. These people in Acts 2, they did what was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. However, it says this also, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. They were guilty of doing the sin, even though it was in God's foreordained, definite plan. Get your head around that. I can't. I'm not God. But it's what my Bible says. I'll tell you another passage you can look at in the week, Isaiah chapter 10. Please check it out. Brothers and sisters, this stuff is important. We can't flatten out the revelation of God. We can't try and make this make sense to our little pygmy minds. I believe that we have to just believe what it says. In Isaiah 10, God raises up the king of Assyria to punish his own people. He calls the king of Assyria and his armies the rod of his indignation. And God strikes Israel with the rod of his indignation. So literally, it's like God picking up the king of Assyria and saying, I'm going to use you. I'm going to take you in my hand to do my purposes. Bam! Strikes his own people with them. And then he judges the king of Assyria for doing that. Why? Because the king of Assyria wasn't going, oh right, I'm going to do God's will by destroying his people. Not at all. The king of Assyria was thinking, I'm going to destroy these people and wipe them out to prove that their God is nothing. He did what was in his own sinful free will to do. He didn't realize he was accomplishing God's predestined plan. Now that's deep, isn't it? Yes, people have freedom. Yes, people have the power to choose what's in their heart to do. But they don't realize that there's a sovereign God working all this stuff together. Even the free actions of men are actually accounted for in God's sovereign plan. It's it's deep stuff. It's heavy stuff for a Sunday afternoon, I know. But here we are. We read in Genesis 50 as well, don't we, about... Joseph and he says this I think it's one of the most profound statements of all of scripture his brothers have sinned against him they tried to have him killed they had him sold into slavery in Egypt and what does he say listen to it he says what you meant for evil God meant for good let me just repeat that again because Christians misquote this all the time they say what you meant for evil God turned for good doesn't say that or they say, what, God meant, what you meant for evil, God used for good. It doesn't say that. It says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God meant those actions. He was an active participant in them. He wasn't passively trying to react. He had already decreed those actions. It's, it's important we see that. Okay? God is sovereign, even over things that just seem chaotic, scary, Worrying, evil. God is sovereign over them. And that's a wonderful truth, brothers and sisters. It means you're not at the mercy of chaos. You are not at the mercy of the devil. Let me tell you how many times I've sat down with Christians who were troubled. They're going through suffering, sickness, loss, 
disappointment and they've been told that that's because the devil's just having a field day in their lives. Oh, the devil's really got it in for me. You know, and yes, it's true. We come under spiritual attack. But have you read the book of Job? Have you read the book of Job? The devil has a field day with Job, but guess who he has to ask for permission to do it? God. So many Christians are surprised when they suffer. They're surprised when God allows these things to happen to them. They're worried. Maybe I didn't declare the right things. Maybe I didn't tithe enough. Maybe I just didn't pray the right prayers. I didn't position myself right enough. Right? And there are many teachers who will tell you that, oh, well, all you needed to do was buy my book and read the seven steps to supernatural victory. Right? And then you'd have been fine. You'd never have got cancer. You, you're, you know, your mother would never have died. That's what we call the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. It's not biblical. And it doesn't help Christians. My concern is more that it doesn't help Christians. It doesn't help Christians to face up to trials like a real son of God the Father. It doesn't help Christians to to weather storms. Instead, it makes them feel that maybe there's a curse on them and they just, you know, yeah, God gave them a new heart and God's filled them with the Holy Spirit, but now they're taking a whooping from the devil. No, God will never let you take a whooping from the devil for your whole Christian life. He'll allow you to go through trials. He'll even allow you to face temptation, sometimes demonic temptation. But he will never allow one of his children to live entirely defeated through their entire life on earth, overcome by sin, overcome by everything. He allows us to go through seasons of suffering because he's king because he's God, because he knows what's best for you. You don't. I'm grateful for the fact that God is sovereign over my life. I was talking to to someone the other day, Joe, about suffering, and she said when she went through a season of suffering, she hurt. She was confused. She struggled. But a friend had asked her, how could you say now that that was God's will? And she said, well, now I can. Now I look back and I see the kind hand of God in all that I went through. And I've grown in this way and that way. And I'm a, I'm a more grown-up Christian because of it. But at the time, I'm thinking, why? But these truths about God's sovereignty help us to endure And they help us to look back at times of suffering and be grateful. And say, Lord, I didn't enjoy it, but you know what? I learned so much. And now my testimony can bless another Christian who's suffering. I've lingered a bit long on this, but I think it's important. This throne, this throne that Daniel sees, I want you to see what it was like. I didn't want to put a picture up because I didn't want to, you know, sometimes when you look at pictures of things in the Bible and it just kind of ruins it for you, you know, and I didn't want to do that. But think in your head, close your eyes. This throne was fiery. It's wheels, it had wheels on it, which were a burning flame and a a stream of like lava 
was flowing out from before it. Daniel sees this ancient of days sat on a throne of fire. Fire is an element in the Bible which is very often connected to God. We see that Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament were destroyed with fire from heaven. Again, we see God appearing to Moses in a burning bush. When the Israelites come out of Egypt, they're led in the night by a pillar of fire. Imagine that, wow. A pillar of fire led them through the wilderness. When Elijah took on the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, it was fire that fell upon his sacrifice. At Pentecost, it was tongues of fire on top of the disciples' heads as they were filled with the Spirit. And our own Lord Jesus talked often of fire, and in particular, the fire of judgment. Fire can signify a number of things in Scripture, and I want us to see that. Not every time you see that fire mentioned in the Bible will it mean exactly the same thing. It's important we understand that. Fire can mean a few things. Firstly, there's what theologians call theophany fire. It's a mouthful. Theophany fire. That's two Greek words. Theos, meaning God, and phanane, which means to show, to reveal, to visit. Okay? So what does that mean altogether? It means God revealing himself. That's what a theophany is. God revealing himself. And so very often we'll see fire when God is revealing himself, like the burning bush. It's a perfect example of that chooses fire for some reason. It, it reveals his, his magnificence, his majesty, and also something about his danger. <laughs> you know, I love in, in the, the Chronicles of Narnia where, uh, you know, the question is asked, well, well, this lion, Aslan, is he safe? No, he's not safe. He's not safe, but he is good. And that's how our God is, isn't it? He reveals himself as, as a fire. Secondly, fire can represent holiness holiness or purification and that's like when we see the tongues like fire on top of the disciples head at Pentecost it's a picture of holiness on top of their heads this is a spirit of holiness upon these men and women and secondly uh, and lastly rather not secondly fire more often than not represents the judgment of God the judgment of God um, Peter in 2 Peter 3, <coughs> excuse me, he says this, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. He's talking about the flood in the time of Noah. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. You can see there the connection between fire and judgment. Even more clearly, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 66, 15 and 16 says this, For behold, the Lord will come in fire, his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger in fury and rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword will all flesh, and all those slain by the Lord shall be many. I love reading these passages of scripture. Hallelujah, glory to God. Every time you read a passage like that, I want you to say, thank you, Lord. Glory to God, because that's the God you worship. And let me tell you, there are so many pastors around this country that will shirk passages like that, but that's your God. That's your God. Hallelujah. 
That's good news. It's God's judgment in Daniel 7 that's clearly in view. We see in verse 11, the little horn and the fourth beast are thrown into the flames as a judgment against their rebellion. (laughs) That's why I always get a bit nervous when Christians, you know, they they pray for the fire of God to fall on me. I'm like, which fire? (laughs) Please, (laughs) just tell me first which fire. Um, Because, you know, obviously we know in scripture, uh, Jesus' own disciples called down fire, didn't they? They wanted to call down fire um, on, on the city's that hadn't received the gospel and Jesus rebukes them he says don't do that so um, you know there's a type of baptism of fire I get it you want that that the spirit of holiness just filling you consuming you encouraging you sending you out to be bold we love that but we don't want the other baptism of fire (laughs) and I won't go into that today Um, but I will say that this throne here that the ancient of days is sat on is a throne of judgment it's a throne of judgment there are wheels attached to it Wheels on a throne. It's like a wheelchair. Um, (laughs) Wheels in biblical prophecy usually denote constant activity. That's what that meant. When he saw wheels on the throne, they were fiery wheels. They're wheels of judgment. And what it's saying is that God is constantly active in judging the affairs of men. Always. So not only will he judge all men on judgment day there will be a day when all are gathered before him but he has wheels on that throne there is a constant activity that as the world spins on its axis God is judging the living he is judging governments and rulers and kingdoms raising them up and casting them down Um, I think that's really really important to see Um, there's a quote from John Calvin that goes like this it's attributed to him I'm not sure if he actually said it but I'll read it anyway. It goes like this, quote, When God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. When God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. And I think maybe it's a bit simplistic, a bit overly simplistic, but, you know, as a truism, you can kind of see what he's getting at, right? When a nation rebels, you very often find they rebel against God. Soon enough, they've got a government over them that is wicked. Uh, Let me me show you, Um, for example... Each of the four kingdoms that we see in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, which we learnt about a few weeks ago, these are the kingdoms of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece and Rome. These are all kingdoms that the Bible says God raised up. Explicitly it says that he raised them up. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're good kingdoms, does it? It doesn't necessarily mean that these were virtuous, God-fearing kingdoms. Um, In fact, in Daniel chapter 2, The golden head of that statue represented who? Nebuchadnezzar. Yes, Yvonne, 10 points to you. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, okay? And what it says is, You, O king, king of kings, to whom God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of men, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, making you rule over them. You are the head of gold. So God gave him the kingdom. He was one of the most tyrannical men to ever rule. God gave it him. He raised up his government. He also cast it down in one day. Remember in Daniel chapter 5, those words on the wall, um, Mene, Tekel, and Perez. And and Daniel says, Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. 
tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes of the Persians. And, and that night, Belshazzar the king was killed. Darius the Mede received the kingdom. I want to say as well, we, we see God exercising this kind of judgment in Daniel, but these wheels that we see tell us that he's doing that now. He's doing that all the time. He's raising up kingdoms and governments in nations and casting them down as he pleases. Now, I can show you this happening, and I think this is my view. You don't necessarily have to share this with me, but politically speaking, having watched quite a few documentaries over the years, politically speaking, you can actually trace the rise of Nazism in Germany back to the First World War, and particularly the Treaty of Versailles. You can trace it back to that treaty, the start of something called the Weimar Republic, uh, where Germany began to suffer incredibly under that uh, agreement. You can trace it back politically to that. Um, but I would say that greater spiritual causes lay behind those political reasons. For example, I don't know if you're aware, but during the 1800s, Germany became famous for a particular type of theology. It was a particular type of theology that sprouted out of Germany and went to cover the whole world. And this theology, this understanding from these Christian professors, it denied the deity of Christ. It denied the virgin birth of Christ. It denied the miracles of Christ, the Jewishness of Christ. It denied the authority of scripture. It denied the resurrection bodily of Christ. And some of these theologians even uh, said that the gospels and the stories about Jesus themselves were just myths robbed from pagan religions. These theologians denied everything that it means to be a Christian and yet they still clung to that name Christian. It's spread all over the world and in fact it's morphed into something we call progressive Christianity today where these people Rob Bell and others feel that they can still take the moniker Christian but deny every core doctrine of the Christian faith and some deluded fools still think that they're Christians while following these people it's a doctrine from hell from the pit of hell it, it grew in Germany and it's no surprise to me that God brought and raised up a sinful government over Germany in response to that. That's my feeling, that's my view. But you see this happen as a pattern. You can look at the communist countries of the 20th century who, who murdered 100 million people. I don't know if you know that. 100 million people murdered in communist countries in the 20th century. Do you know what one of the core beliefs of communism was? A denial of God. Atheism as a state religion. Is it any wonder that godless, evil governments were raised up over these poor people? The good news is that the opposite is true too. When a people decide to serve God, to honour his word, to worship him, to protect the worship of God and to help the vulnerable and the needy and the broken, that's when we, we see a change. That's when we see God raise up godly governments. And in fact, it's what we see in the growth of Western civilization in the 19th and 20th centuries. The rise of the United States of America 
is part of that process. It was built upon the Judeo-Christian worldview. And God honoured that nation and others in Western civilization with blessing and growth and prosperity. The opposite is true also. So what does this tell us and how can we be encouraged? It tells us this, brothers and sisters. It tells us that God doesn't miss a thing. It tells us that even though sometimes people and leaders and governments seem to get away with a lot in this world. They seem to get away with evil. But scripture and this one in particular tells us that there will be a reckoning day. There will be a reckoning for the evil and the abuse that people suffer in this world. We read in Genesis Shall the judge of all the earth not do what is just? And the answer is yes, he shall. Yes, he shall do what is right. We read of uh, this ancient of days, his hair like pure wool, his garments white as snow. In fact, we read a very similar description of the Son of Man in Revelation 1, don't we? We read about this Son of Man in John's vision. Clothed in a long robe, gold sash, hair, white like wool, uh, like snow, and his eyes are a flame of fire. Does that mean that the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7 and the Son of Man in Revelation are the same person? I don't think it does. Daniel 7, the Ancient of Days, is very clearly God the Father. Whereas the Son of Man in Revelation 1 is very clearly the resurrected Christ. However, it does tell us something about their character. It tells us that they're both divine persons. It tells us that they are holy. The color white is always associated with holiness. Does it mean they've got hair like a sheep's wool? Big fat curls? No, <laughs> not necessarily. Um, but God displays himself to people, to humans like us, in a way that we'd understand. It's like when you're teaching a child something. You're not going to start teaching them maths with like heavy equations. You're going to start down at one plus one. You know, you're going to make it simple. John Calvin said, We ought not to imagine God in his essence to be like any appearance to his own prophet and the other holy fathers, but he put on various appearances according to man's comprehension to whom he wished to give some signs of his presence. As our capacity cannot endure the fullness of that surpassing glory which essentially belongs to God. Whenever he appears to us, he must necessarily put on a form adapted to our comprehension. Big words, but basically it means if God showed up to you in his natural essence, you'd die. You'd die. It would be too much. So what he does is he makes himself look familiar, human-like to us so that we'd understand. We read a million angels minister to him on his throne and hundreds of millions stand before him and there's books that are opened. These books, commentators believe, are the unerring record of the thoughts of man, the words and deeds of all mankind which are written in the unfailing memory of God. That makes me really glad for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ 
really, really glad that my name is written in the book of life. I don't know about you, but I don't want my thoughts and my deeds to be the things that judge me on that day. Hallelujah. The question we have to ask is, in which book are we? We want to be in the book of life? Or do we want to have our life judged eternally by these books that are opened here? I think it's important to note at this point that this picture reminds us of of one big fact, probably the biggest fact that any human can learn, and it's this, God is holy, you are not. God is holy, you aren't. Even the most moral person in the world looks like a complete degenerate stood next to God. And the only way to avoid the judgment of God, because he is holy, is to be holy like he is. It's the only way you avoid it, is to be holy with the same holiness that he is holy. Well, how is that possible? How can that be? Because all of us sin, all of us fell in Adam, and all of us continue like Adam to continue in sin and falling short of our own standards. But listen, for those in Christ who did live out that perfect holy life, there can't be any judgment. There cannot be any. There can be no wrath from God. There can be no punishment from God. There can only be blessings from God, actually. There can only be positive blessings upon all those in Christ because we're stood in his holiness. In fact, let me read to you Romans 8. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. There's no condemnation for you if you're in Christ. If you believe on him, there's no condemnation that can come upon you. Daniel then tells us about this son of man, and here's where I want to finish. He says he sees one like a son of man. Notice he doesn't say, I saw a son of man. He says, I saw one like a son of man. Well, what's a son of man? I don't really refer to people as son of men, (coughs) but a son of man just means a human, a person, a man, a woman, but in this instance, a man. So Jesus took for himself one title in all of New Testament scripture. He was called many things. He was called the Son of God by others. He was called Lord, Kyrios, by his disciples. He is called a prophet by others. He's called rabbi, teacher, by Mary and Martha, but there's one title that he chose for himself and that no one else calls him, the Son of Man. Jesus called himself the Son of Man. And to those of us living in the 21st century without any Jewish heritage or teaching, we're like, why did he call himself that? If he wanted everyone to believe in him, why did he call himself the Son of Man? Call yourself the Son of God. And in fact, Muslims will say, well, he called himself the Son of Man because he was clearly saying he's not divine. He's just a man. He's identifying as a man. Is that true? Jesus wasn't doing anything of the sort. What Jesus is saying, he's saying, I am the son of man of Daniel 7. That's who I am. I'm the son of man of Daniel chapter 7. He's the son of man who receives a kingdom from the ancient of days that never ends 
We read Jesus speaking to Pilate in John 18, don't we? My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate said to him, are you a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus is the king. He is the son of man of Daniel 7, who is given a kingdom, who is given glory, who is given worship that all peoples of all nations, of all languages should serve him. In many translations, it does say that, doesn't it? That they'll serve him. And there are some Jehovah's Witnesses who say we shouldn't worship Jesus. He'll say, look, it doesn't say worship, it says serve. But if you've got the NIV, or if you know the language being spoken in the original here, the word here is palach, okay, which can properly be translated worship. He shall be worshipped. Jesus Christ is the Son of Man in this picture. This is the one receiving the kingdom. Now some believe the picture of the Son of Man coming to receive the kingdom is something that has already happened. Some believe this is a picture that Jesus receives the kingdom after his resurrection. Others believe that this is a picture of the end of time, the consummation of the kingdom where Christ comes and receives his kingdom before ruling in the millennial reign on earth. Either way, I want you to see that the picture is clear. Christ is king. He's coming back. When he comes back, he's not coming anymore as a carpenter's son. He's not coming anymore as a lamb. He's coming conquering as a lion. He's coming to rule and reign. And when that day comes, there will be no more second chances. Now is our chance to count ourselves into the kingdom of Christ. Now is our chance to approach the throne of God and receive forgiveness and mercy and the love of God the Father. Now is that time. In that day, when that throne comes, it's too late. It's too late. So I want for us all to just soberly be aware of that, that the love of God, the great love of the Father, which he's loved all of the world with through, through Jesus Christ, is available to us today, right now. And when he returns in glory, all those who are his will reign with him forever. Have you ever thought of that? If you're a Christian today, you've got a very, very long life to look forward to. <laughs> a very long life, an eternal life. And do you see what that life is going to be given over to? Worship. It's a life given over to worship for all time. That's our call. That's our privilege. That is our destiny. To worship him for all eternity. Hallelujah. Let's stand and I have the worship team up. And could I, could I ask um, Ruth, CJ, and... Um, I'll have as well uh, Bucky, if you don't mind, Bucky. Going to be just here. And I just felt maybe, as I've been speaking today, there are some who have gone through trials, 
who've gone through suffering, who've gone through pain, and really just need a touch from God today, really just need an encouragement that God is with them, that God loves them, and need that healing touch of the Father. And so I'd encourage you to, to come in and receive prayer. These guys are waiting to, to pray for you. So you can go and receive prayer anytime you'd like. But let's, let's take a moment now and pray before we worship. Father, we thank you that you are a God who reigns from a throne. You are sovereign. You raise up governments. You cast down governments. You are in charge of all the affairs of mankind. And that means that you care intimately about every last detail of our lives. You love us through even our trials and sufferings. And there's purpose in it all. And God, we come today and we give you thanks and praise that you know best that you have loved us with an unfailing love today. And Lord, we want to say yes to your kingdom. We want to say that, Lord Jesus, we believe on you. We thank you for your holiness. We thank you for your grace today. And we thank you that we are loved with an everlasting love through the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Praise God.